Neuropodcases, a neuroscience podcast created for medical students. In these bonus episodes of the podcast, we discuss clinical cases with consultant neurologist Dr. Rhys Davies. These discussions primarily focus on the clinico-anatomical correlation of neurological symptoms. We hope you enjoy listening. Hello and welcome to another podcast episode. I'm joined by Dr. Rhys Davies. Hello there. Um, so again, I'll just begin by going through the case. So Mr. Smith is age 70. He's been aware of weak grip in his right hand for three months without any sensory disturbance. This has worsened slightly and he has also noticed discomfort in his thighs and calves. Together with a slight sense of imbalance, urinary and bowel functions are intact. On examination, there is loss of muscle bulk between the base of the thumb and index finger in the right hand. There is also slight flickering of the forearm muscles on the right, including brachioradialis. Muscle tone is within normal limits. Muscle strength is diminished in abduction of the right index finger and thumb, but not for any other movement. The tendon reflexes are all brisk, including the brachioradialis reflex on the right. The plantar responses are upgoing bilaterally. Okay, so just to begin with, um, I know we've covered this in other podcasts, but just as a, a recap, could you describe the neural pathways that control movement in the right arm, including the central and peripheral nerve structures and where the synapse in that pathway is? Okay, so, so this case includes numerous potential diagnoses that localise to different points in this pathway. So I think it's good to recap... And if we leave aside the sort of higher motor control aspects, so the input to motor function from the basal ganglia, the cerebellum and so on, uh, let's begin with the primary motor cortex on the opposite side to the limb in question. So we're talking about the right arm, therefore the left primary motor cortex in the pre-central gyrus. So there are uh, large uh, pyramidal cells, some, some of them uh, large enough to deserve to be called BET cells, and these send their axons through the hemisphere, through the white matter of their hemisphere, and uh, these are the fibres of the corticospinal tract. They start at the cortex and they're on their way to the grey matter of the spinal cord. So at the level of the hemisphere... Uh, these fibres are in the white matter, then they uh, pass in the white matter of the internal capsule, in fact the posterior limb of the internal capsule, um, passing between the basal ganglia structures and the thalamus, and then they are in the midbrain, in the cerebral peduncle, anterior to the midbrain, then within the pons, and then in the medulla, on the same side, on the left side, mm -hmm. and then they form a structure uh, called the pyramid. So these are axons of pyramidal cells microscopically, but they also contribute to the macroscopic structure, the pyramid, which is on the anterior surface of the medulla. At that point, the pathway decussates, so it crosses and therefore the fibres pass on the right side of the spinal cord. So uh, basically this is the lateral corticospinal tract. 
and the fibres descend to the cervical cord um, and then uh, the terminals of this corticospinal uh, tract uh, synapse within the anterior horn of the grey matter of the cord um, and that's the synapse between the upper motor neuron and the lower motor neuron cell body. The lower motor neuron from the anterior horn of the spinal cord contributes its axon to, to a bundle, a fascicle, that head outward from the CNS, uh, and this is then the spinal root at a given level. So, so these are levels C5 to T1 uh, in the case of the upper limb, uh, and then these roots pass out of the spinal column in the exit foramen. They then uh, contribute as roots to the brachial plexus, and then from the brachial plexus, you have the named peripheral nerves arising. And of course, uh, the peripheral nerves contain axons whose terminals form the neuromuscular junction in a given muscle. Uh, and the name of the anterior horn cell and its axons, its neuromuscular junctions in their entirety, and the myofibrils they supply... The name for that is the motor unit. So there you have the upper motor neuron and the lower motor neuron and the synapse between them. Thanks. And back to the case. So what are the two main types of weakness that result from damage to neural structures? So we're leading on from those terms, upper motor neuron and lower motor neuron. So uh, here we have weakness uh, in the case of a lesion in the upper motor neuron. The weakness is associated often with increased tone and uh, increased reflexes, whereas with a lower motor neuron, uh, the lesion is um, the syndrome is more straightforward. Uh, so you have uh, decreased tone, although that's difficult to document, and absent reflexes. Um, you also get some sort of extra observations sometimes. So loss of cortical control in, a, um, in an upper motor neuron uh, allows so-called superficial reflexes to be uh, uncovered, and that includes the Babinski response or the upgoing plantar response, whereas in the case of a lower motor neuron syndrome, uh, in addition to the weakness and the absent reflexes, you get peripheral muscle-related additional activity, um, and these are in the form of fasciculation and fibrillation. Okay, and Mr Smith had, on examination, had weakness of both thumb and right index finger abduction. So which muscle and nerve are responsible for abduction of each of those? Ah, okay, so um, finger abduction... Um, so this is a function of the interossei, and, and it's the dorsal interossei that abduct, D-A-B, dab. Um, and so the abduction of the index finger is a function of the first dorsal interosseous muscle of the hand, um, and that muscle is one of those supplied by the ulnar nerve. Whereas the thumb, uh, the main abductor muscle is abductor pollicis brevis and this is one of the muscles of the thenar eminence so that's the the the, the bulge of flesh just uh, on the palmar surface of the hand 
at the base of the thumb, and when that contracts, it pulls the thumb upwards, and that's the abduction. That group of muscles, unlike most of the small muscles of the hand, that group of muscles is supplied by the median nerve. So there's distinct muscles that do those movements, and importantly, distinct nerves that supply those muscles. Okay. And what do we call the syndrome of weakness and stiffness in both legs? Also, what would be the site of the smallest lesion that could cause that? Okay, so um, there's the words plegia and paresis, aren't there? So, so plegia implies that all the strength has been knocked out. So complete paralysis would be a plegia and uh, uh, a weakness would be uh, a paresis. And so these, these words, um, for most of us, can be used interchangeably, um, uh, but, but, but technically plegia means complete loss of power, whereas paresis is relative weakness. Anyway, you can get a hemiplegia, that is uh, paralysis of half your body, um, and a hemiparesis, that would be weakness of half your body. Okay. But there's lots of other terms, so you can get an ophthalmoparesis, weakness of eye movements. You can get monoparesis, that's weakness of one limb. And then uh, in this case, what you have is a paraparesis or a paraplegia, that's weakness of two limbs that are next to each other. There are scenarios where you can get an upper limb uh, paraplegia, but basically the vast majority of paraplegias are of the lower limbs. And by far the most important site clinically for localising in the case of a paraplegia is the spinal cord, because obviously that's the site within the nervous system where uh, the, the pathways supplying uh, motor stimulation to the limbs are closest to one another. Okay, so most likely to be spinal cord, mm. but um, what would be the most rostral or highest site of disease that could account for a similar... Okay, so this is, this is a quirky one. Um, so um, obviously you, you, you could get um, loss of power in both legs from a peripheral nerve problem. Um, so if you had diffuse disease, a polyneuropathy, that would be a lower motor neuron syndrome. Um, but... What this question is asking is really uh, for us to have a little think about the homunculus. So this is the, this is the way that the muscles of the body are mapped within the primary motor cortex bilaterally. And the quirk is that the legs are medially sighted in the homunculus both sides. So, so basically it's like a... Um, uh, a child on a uh, on a on a climbing frame um, hooking the bar with his legs, and so basically you've got the legs on on both sides of the midline, and then the the the, the body uh, dangles uh, across the convexity of the hemisphere. So what that means, if if you've got pathology in the midline, uh, you can get uh, a spastic paraparesis from a lesion of the brain itself, whereas it would be very unusual to have um, symmetric weakness of the upper limbs. It's much more common from uh, uh, brain pathology to get symmetric weakness of the lower limbs. And of course, the tissues that are located there, so you've got the um, 
cerebral venous sinus, the sagittal sinus. Um, and if you've got thrombosis in, in that, you could get um, engorgement and uh, lesions on either side, causing a spastic paraparesis. Um, you've got meningeal tissue here, and if that has a, a, a neoplasm in it, then that could press on the motor cortex uh, on either side. So a meningioma or a sinus thrombosis would be two of the things that in principle could cause a spastic paraparesis from cranial disease. Um, but as I've emphasised already, um, it's really important not to miss spinal cord pathology um, when you're when you're seeing a patient with a spastic paraparesis. Okay, and then final question, uh, which is itself a few questions. So, flickering of the brachioradialis muscle and the presence of an active reflex in the same muscle is paradoxical. Uh, what is the paradox, and how might the conflicting observations be reconciled? Oh, okay. So we've got several. Uh, paradox scenarios in this case so uh, the first is that we've got weakness in the hand in a distribution that can't be explained by a single nerve so we've got weakness of the median innervated muscles and the ulnar innervated muscles okay so that means that it can't be just a single nerve in this particular case the two uh, things happening together are not just two nerves being affected but two types of syndrome okay so so flickering in brachioradialis that's really a description of fasciculation in that muscle an, an everyday description of fasciculation so that implies a lower motor neuron syndrome the other observation that's made is that the reflex is brisk, okay? and that implies an upper motor neuron syndrome. So what we have here is both a lower motor neuron sign and an upper motor neuron sign in exactly the same myotome, in exactly the same muscle. And that is paradoxical because you can't get something pinching on a nerve or pinching on any site within the nervous system that causes exactly that combination. You could get a combination of upper and lower motor neuron signs from something pinching on the spinal cord and the spinal nerve roots in the neck, because in that case you'd get a lower motor neuron syndrome in the upper limbs and an upper motor neuron syndrome in the lower limbs. But in this case, both the upper and the lower motor neuron signs are in the same muscle. And the only scenario where that can happen is a primary neurodegenerative disease. And this is actually the description of motor neuron disease, the description of amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. So degenerative motor neuron disease causes amyotrophy, muscle wasting, as a lower motor neuron syndrome, together with uh, the pathological ob observation of scarring in the lateral corticospinal tract, lateral sclerosis. So this patient, on clinical grounds, can be diagnosed with motor neuron disease. 
Okay, and that's the the end of the discussion there, really. So, any key messages for the students with regards to this case? Uh, so, this case is on several levels. Um, it reminds us about localising to individual muscles and individual peripheral nerves. It reminds us of the importance of thinking about central disease sites in uh, neurological syndromes, so a cord lesion causing a spastic paraparesis. But it also reminds us of uh, the importance of your clinical observations, um, especially with complex and difficult cases. So there's no, there's no actual test that would give the answer here. It's really your clinical history and your clinical examination. Um, and although uh, it takes a while to become confident in this, I think uh, even at an early stage of your medical studies, uh, having an understanding of how those uh, clinical decisions are made uh, is helpful. Thanks very much. enjoyed listening to this episode look out for more podcast episodes coming out shortly